Just like that your life can change If I hadn't looked away My boy might still be with me now He'd be 25 today No knife can carve away the Hey, this is Steve Balton, and welcome back to a new season of My Turning Point. We had a long break while I finished a book, which came out last year, and had some health issues, but thankfully, everything is great now. And looking forward to this new season, which kicks off today with a true legend, Bonnie Raitt, the Grammy winner who surprised everyone, including herself, when she took home Song of the Year for the Brilliant Just Like That. I spoke with Raitt at great length about that song, how John Prine influenced her on that song, what song she would want to cover with the Foo Fighters, and much, much more. Bonnie Raitt is truly one of the greats in music, both as a person and as an artist. So it was a great pleasure to speak with her, and welcome to the new season of My Turning Point. Now, all right, we're going to start on a fun note. This album, by the way, man, there are a couple moments on here. Oh my, just like that is just, it's a killer. It is. Thank you very much. That song is that song is special. But before we come on to that, we're going to have fun for a moment because there's a lot of fun, but a lot of very beautiful moments on this record. But if you remember back in 2017, you're not going to remember this, but in 2017, I did the Rolling Stone piece uh, I do, with you I do and Dave Roll. Okay. Well, as it turns out, funny enough, I happen to be interviewing Dave today at 440 about their new film. So I love the fact, the symmetry of interviewing both of you randomly again on the same day. So since at the time we discussed the fact that you had both covered Jerry Rafferty songs, put you on the spot for a second. What is the 170 song that you would love to cover with the Foo Fighters? And I'm going to ask them the same question about you. Oh, oh God. A 70s song. Uh, Highway to Hell. <laughs> Interesting. I would not have guessed that one coming from Jerry Rafferty, but you know, I also love ACDC. I, I don't, I mean, I didn't know if this, uh, I imagine that came out as, I just like that song, but I, if I had, I'd have to take more, more, more time to think about it because um, <laughs> that was just basically a comic wink to the fact that I know we both love that song and maybe you too. Um, I yeah. have to think of, I'll have to give it more thought than I, than, uh, than that. It's all good. I mean, that would be a lot of fun to see. But, you know, as I say, and by the way, since their new movie is a horror movie about recording in a haunted studio, actually, that would be a perfect song for the soundtrack. <laughs> I can't sing like John bon, uh, bon Scott. You know, I just I, I just have always loved that vocal. But if I ever have to sing on tour, I can't sing that even at soundcheck because it'll, it's too tempting to sing it really rough and that would blow my voice out. Well, you know, Bruce did it and was not an expected cover. And in fact, Tom Morello, who's a friend, was telling me it was actually his idea to cover it because he had Bruce and uh, him and Eddie Vedder all together in Australia. So, you know. Yeah, but that's that's le that's leather throat. I don't I don't qualify for that. <laughs> well, it's all right. You, you know, you have your own skill set. And as I said, it, it, this is such a wonderful record, but um it's interesting. You know, I always like to start with the writing. Was there a, a song early on that sort of uh, started this record and got it going? Was there something early on that sort of began the writing process for this album? You know, for me, it's a question of um, 
going through songs that I've stashed over the years that I'm just waiting to find the perfect place to put them on a record. One, one example of that would be Al Anderson's something's got a hold of my heart. I've had that song for 30 years and it just hasn't quite had the, until I have the mix of at least seven or eight songs lined up. I don't know what other songs I'm putting together the album, according to, you know, how many, not too many ballads, some nice variation of musical styles thinking ahead on what my fans and I want to play for the next time on tour to, to add to songs I already know I'm going to be playing in the show. So I'm always picking feels and lyrical ideas and grooves that, um, that are fresh for me and, and also just something I haven't covered and that I really want to add to the show. So that, that informs why I write, because I have something important to say that I'm not hearing coming out of the other song choices. But I, I had a few songs that I've known on I was going to record on this record um, since 2014 when I heard Made Up Mind by this band from Winnipeg called Brothers Landreth. I love that song. They actually got a Juno Award for the album that that's on for a Roots record in Canada. But um, I don't, you know, they live up there and I'm just a fan of Joey's guitar playing and their writing. And it's one of the best new bands I've heard in many, many years. So I knew I had that one, and that's since about 2015. Uh, Al Anderson I had 30 years ago. Jonah Smith's song I've known I wanted to cut since I heard it in 2009. So there was already three in the pocket there. And then Toots, my dear friend Toots and I were going to do Love So Strong together. And sadly, he passed away from complications most likely of COVID. So that was a, a big heartbreak. And let's see what else is on there. The, the songs that that I wrote, Two of them I wrote in early 2019, the lyrics of, but I didn't put the music on until right before the album. And, and I have to say that I knew there were probably going to be acoustic guitar songs and not keyboard songs, which I tend to write my more emotional ballads on the, on the piano. I'm more, a little bit more facile on the piano than I am on guitar. And, um, but I just really love those early Dylan songs and Jackson Brown's first album. And, and best of all, John Prine. And especially having lost him just like that, when I was putting the words to that and picking a key and finger picking, I just was really holding him in my heart for the story songs that he inspired me so much and all of us. And um, so that those songs were be begun in 2018, but the music was put on right before we recorded. And I'm trying to think of what else is on the record. Oh, Waiting for You to Blow. I always wanted to write a song about that devil on your shoulder for those of us in recovery, but you don't even have to be in recovery to know that the side of you that wants you to stay up later than you should and have another piece of pie or, you know, or tell a white lie about why you didn't answer someone's email sooner. All those little ways that our character defaults come up and, and give us a raspberry while we're trying to be a good balanced human being. So I, I had written another song uh, called feeling of falling. I missed that feeling of falling, falling over the ledge which is also about what it's like to be in recovery. And, and this one here is just, it's, you know, it's not about not using drugs or alcohol or whatever you're addicted to. It's, it's about the ways, if you, don't, if you let that slip happen, it can just drag you, drag you down. And that's what that, that little uh, other, other part of you is waiting for you to blow so it can grab a hold, a little devilish side. So, and I'm, I'm really proud of the, um, the stretch musically that I did on that one. That's the most adventurous musical um foray that i've done mixing funk and kind of jazz and 
all of the drum parts and horn parts and keyboard parts that are in there, either on guitar or keyboard. Um, those were all things I just came up with on my own. And I wanted to put that topic with that kind of feel and, you know, very much inspired by Mose Allison and Randy Newman, you know, their kind of sardonic point of view when they're being humorous, but it, there's really a, a kind of a piercing truth to what they're talking about. You know, it's interesting though, too, because I want to come back to what you were just saying about the musicality on waiting for you to blow and stretching out on that. And, you know, the fact you said some of these songs go back to some of the songs you wrote go back to 2018, 19, because I got to talk to Jackson during COVID and earlier during COVID, you know, and one of the things we discussed and I discussed with so many artists was there was a lot more room to stretch out musically because you were no longer on the hamster wheel of album tour, album tour. So do you feel like on a song like When We Say Goodnight or even putting the music on just like that, which by the way, when I heard just like that, all I could think of was John Prine. So you you just nailed that 100%. But, you know, do you feel like you had more room to stretch out musically because there was time to experiment and you knew that you were going to have more time before you could go on the road? I wish that were the case, but in fact, I was busier on the two years I've been off since um, off the road than I usually am. I usually get a real break in a couple of vacations, but because of um, because of so many um, elect candidates running for election that needed support, I was able to raise a lot more money and do more events across the year of the election year, especially. But you know, farm aid and and the gun control benefit and musicians relief benefits a fire relief benefit all of the different groups and uh, humanitarian crises and covid relief efforts that would normally you would you wouldn't may not may not be able to fit in because you're on tour but because i was at home and all i had to do was turn a video camera on and sing one song from a, from a quiet place i ended up doing uh, over a dozen guest performances and you know, a couple of duets remotely with Boz Skaggs. I did a duet with Jackson. And, the, and then just managing the volume of requests that came in. If you did 10, you know, if you did, if you got 10 requests from California candidates running for ha the House of Representatives, then, then you had from every state you've ever done a benefit in, every Native American tribe, all kinds of women's issues. And then we had Black Lives Matter come up. And that's not even counting humanitarian and uh, environmental crises. So it actually was a relief when this year uh, it looked like we were going to get vaccinations and I was going to actually be able to plan a record and bring everybody into Northern California where I live. So that's when I kind of fast tracked putting the music to those lyrics that I had. But I didn't feel like I got a chance to stretch out because I wasn't really off ever the whole time I've been home. And, and I, ironically, I get I'm more off on the road than I am. Once the promotion, you know, hump of six months of, of website planning, tours, sets, clothes, you know, podcasts, you know, five months in advance, long lead press, rewriting my bio. All of that stuff happens ongoing with benefit requests and blurbs and guest spots on radio shows and stuff. Um, you know, when you get on the road, you can use the excuse that I'm saving my voice. <laughs> And you just, you know, you, you, you get, you have to do yoga, you have to do exercise, you have to have some peace to meditate. And then it's time to get ready for the show and check out of the hotel. So I find I have more time to think about the next project when I'm on the road, but I certainly had more time to, um, 
you know, when I could carve time when I'm hiking, which I do almost every day, that's where I do the work of li- not only do I love to listen to audible books, but I listen and I, and I contemplate what music I'm going to put on the next record. So I, I didn't really get in, in earnest planning these songs until, um, you know, I had a, I had a recording date in, in mind. And then this is sort of my process is when something six months away, I start, I'm one of those people that writes the term paper like three weeks before that it's due. <laughs> Uh, once again, there's so many directions to go in with that. And by the way, then you'll appreciate this because this actually goes back to Dave. But uh, I understand because I remember when he first had kids and he was telling me, dude, well, I'll plan a Foo Fighters tour just so I could get sleep. So I, I think for some artists, there is more structure on the road. But, you know, interesting then, I want to come back to something. You were talking about doing the the live performances and the, like doing the one-off songs. And Because I think one thing that's interesting in all this, and this comes back in with the idea of the upcoming tour, and Jackson and I discussed this as well, is, look, as an artist, you're always looking ahead. Most artists hate to ever look back. And doing these songs in these stripped-down ways, you really had an opportunity to reappreciate or hear the songs in different ways. Or like, for example, one of my favorite Jackson songs of all time I've always been obsessed with is That Girl Could Sing. And we spent, I swear, 20 minutes talking about how he relearned that song during COVID because he had the time to. And because, you know, he had the time to appreciate it. So were there songs of yours that as you did these performances or that very simply not being on the road, you didn't get to play for a couple of years in front of an audience that you had the opportunity to rediscover or reappreciate or just very simply miss? Well, you know, I'm used to doing even a, a stripped down kind of acoustic part of the show just to vary it up for the fans and for me. But I usually have my bass player playing or just an or an organ or some very stripped down. So it's a, it was a severe challenge to look to perform to a, 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 a camera, you know what I mean? And just by yourself it, it, with, but luckily I had what my guitar tech um, Ross was there and running the recording. So I wouldn't mess that up, but it was very, I was very vulnerable because I knew so much was riding on these people winning and, uh, and there, I had no idea um, you know, how many hundreds of people were going to be tuning in and I was out of practice. So I, I got, Jackson and I spoke about it too. We all got used to how to light ourselves and how to be a little bit more comfortable performing from our living room without an audience. And, um, you know, it's like for you, for guys on the radio, you know, eventually you get used to the fact that someone's going to film it for a podcast, but it's, it's very uncomfortable in the beginning. And then you just get used to it. Um, so I enjoyed playing Nick of Time, for example, by myself on the keyboard. It was a totally different song. Um, Angel, without the bass part of the harmony, was kind of, um, you know, I, I recorded it before John passed and then several times after he passed. So that song will always be especially wrenching for me. It was always an important, the, one of the most important ones in my, in my repertoire, or whatever you call it, that the, the stage shows and what people remember me for. But since John's passing, it has a whole different resonance to it. So I, I enjoyed learning how to play by myself. And, and, you know, Jackson was a big inspiration when he went on tour and played, he, he played a lot of tours and put out a lot of records of all of his songs solo on guitar. And it was really inspirational. So I think benefits drive us being more comfortable playing stripped down because it's just too expensive to bring your whole band in. 
That's fascinating. Actually, I never thought about that, but it's funny because I go back to all the way. So I'm a, a massive Springsteen fan as well. I saw you and he and Jackson when you guys did the Christic Benefit in 91, which if I remember was one of the very first, if not the first shows that he had done that. So it's interesting to come back to this all these years later. And what's cool about it as well is that you're able to come back to it again still. Well, okay, let me rephrase this. On the one hand, it's cool that you're able to come back to it for a positive cause. On the other hand, it's disappointing in times that we're still so fucked as a culture and there are still so many causes that need addressing all the time. Oh, yeah. Well, that's just, you know, if you're an activist and a musician, that's the that's a tradition that Jackson and I and Christofferson and Graham and David and everybody grew up in, you know, in the 60s. I mean, Pete Seeger and the Weavers and Woody Guthrie and the people that have been singing songs for labor movements and the Spanish Civil War and the peace movement and the civil rights movement, the staple singers, you know, all of those people were inspirational. And in our preteen and teenage years, those were our heroes. Bob Dylan, Joan Baez were out in the front lines singing songs about the things that we're still singing songs about now. So it's to jump back to play rallies and reservations and the Black Hills Alliance marches. And, and uh, you know, we've played five decades now of stripped down solo versions of our songs up on stages before people took off and marched somewhere, you know, so it's, it's something that reminds me of when I'm being of service. So it was really kind of natural, but to do it in a room when you know you're being filmed and not just everybody in the, out there is going to see it that's standing there in front of you, but you're going to be forever. This is going to be online forever. That has been a real adjustment for me, but I've, I've gotten more used to it. And nothing's as now, terrifying. Nothing's as terrifying as SNL the first time when you're only 27. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I love that, by the way. Then you'll I did a book this year that uh, is coming out later, where I actually spoke with Janice Ian about at seventeen and being the very first performer on SNL. So, so you know, I mean, you talk. I know that that's so cool. That is so cool. She was the very first musical guest. You talk about a trailblazer. So it's funny now for you. Let's bring this in now and have some fun with it for a second. What would you say to people coming on SNL now for the first time? And that's also cool, sort of the fact that you know. 50 years later, it's still relevant. So what's the advice you would give for people who are, you know, because like you're, for example, doing the Billboard Women of Year where you're being honored and you're being honored with Phoebe Bridgers, who I interviewed last year and is fucking awesome. So what advice do you have to young artists doing SNL for the first time? You know, I think that the scene is so different with kids in the, in the successive generations from the, you know, who's ever 18 now to 28. I mean, they've been in the internet and social media and on so much more broadcast live visual media than we were at the time. We didn't have MTV. We didn't have cable. We didn't have the ability to record off the TV. So, you know, you were just performing live and that was going to be it. Um, but I think, you know, looking at the poise that Adele and Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran have and how comfortable they are on camera, Billie Eilish, it's like they were born on camera, you know? So I think if anything, they get, more and more brave when it's a live performance, something like SNL, there's nothing to lose by being completely transparent. And I admire that tremendously. You know, I, I've admired the, the bad, the, the good side of being on camera and having being followed in, the, in like a reality show of your life by so many, you know, in the promotion and especially, but all these events and award shows, and you're interviewed all the time before you, you learn what to leave out and what to put in and what to make interesting. 
and you get a thicker skin. But I, you know, I don't go on social media to read comments about whether someone's liking what I'm saying or doing, because it's just, I don't have the thick, thicker skin that younger people do. So I think they would give me advice more than the other way around. Well, see, that's fascinating too. And I love this because this all ties in, you know, and in regards to the activism, what's very interesting is, you know, one of the cool things was seeing all of these artists sort of become activists, but it's done in a very different way now where you have the Taylor Swifts and the Billie Eilishes and Billie's brother Phineas in particular, who I really love and, you know, who now use their social media and they're not necessarily writing protest songs, but they were so active. And so, you know, you do see that. And it's interesting how the two worlds sort of merge for a little bit. So for you, you know, just talk about as being an activist for many years. And of course, I've talked with Graham about this and the activists that he really admires and the way that they've used their voice and the importance of that. So for you, very quickly, you know, how much has it been, I don't want to say rewarding, uh, important to see these artists, you know, start to develop their own social conscience. And even if it comes out in a different way, it's still there and very prominent and very active. Yeah, I'm, I'm very encouraged. I mean, I have been, this has been the most fraught and upsetting and stressful and vitriolic and worrisome time in my lifetime of all the crises of the Cold War and civil rights, you know, riots and the Vietnam War. I, nothing compares to the delusion and lack of belief of the center uh, values of democracy and elections and integrity about science and you know, experts, nobody's agreeing on who's an expert. I mean, just never, none of us could have imagined that this was going to be our new landscape. And not to mention, I mean, we saw the climate disasters coming. We saw what the, you know, the 1%, you know, in the occupying Wall Street was very, very encouraging. The, the Greta with her and climate change uprising of especially young people in the streets, Black Lives Matter, the Women's March, the number of cross-generations, cross-cultural, cross-racial lines, you know, seg segregated parts of society that don't, don't normally interact. The way that's coming together musically and in film and in activism is extremely uplifting for me and encouraging at a time that is the, literally the darkest time that I can imagine being alive since I've been alive. And that's why I wrote that song, Living for the Ones Who Didn't Make It, because I literally did not think I could get out of bed a whole bunch of days in this last terrible election cycle. And then George Floyd, it was just one hammer after another. And I'm living in a privileged section of the world where, you know, we have security and we have access to health care and good advice and the organic food and, you know, don't have to worry about whether we're going to lose our house or not. You know, I mean, the, the majority of people are suffering terribly and the, of course, the ones that are getting the brunt of the, the impact of climate change and poor health are the people least able to afford it. And they haven't been the cause of what's making the social inequity or the lack of access to health care and food and education. So it's 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 beyond daunting. It's an insurmountable um, issues to solve so that to see to see the inspiration of younger people really taking up the charge and and not you know, not being like in the 80s, the me decade or whatever, you know, let's just party on dude or drop out and smoke pot, you know, they're actually getting involved. So I'm, I'm really happy to see that it's the one encouraging thing that I see. And, you know, I'm having to spend a lot more time 
in nature and with animals and, you know, in the shutdown, it has given, given some solace and some comfort to go into deeper meditation and yoga practices and, and read more and listen to music, finding songs for the next record. So on that level, on my off hours, when I'm not working on my career or, or managing my activism with my team, I, I really find that I've learned a lot about self-care and reconnecting with the spiritual uplift and the joyful parts of life that are untouched by what's going on in the world is the stressful stuff. I, I have to not read the first section of the paper until I'm really awake in the afternoon and I don't doom scroll on the news too much. So I've, I've learned how to cope, but I'm telling you, when I get out there and play music again, it is going to be so much fun and so uplifting and so much joy that to take the ability to have that exchange with the audience, that catharsis and that, that tribal exaltation and pull it away for two and a half years has been just unbelievable, especially without the release of playing live during all this stressful time of the pandemic and climate and George Floyd and, and uh, you know, the election. So I, I'm really hoping that we can get back on the road and do this tour because, I mean, the, the, that's, it's medicine on a level that we really need for the audience and for me. No, I agree with that. And there's a lot in there again. And it's interesting when you, and I want to ask you now as a fan, when you think back to the moments that you had, and you mentioned the early protest songs and, you know, those artists and how they were heroes for you. Are there uh, artists for you that you think back to being a fan who were the medicine for you live, who, who had that communal spirit and who uplifted and, you know, it's funny because I just got to interview Bob Weir last week, who I know you've known for a long time and, you gave me his his show, and I'm curious for you if there's that one first show that you can think of that really uplifted you and made oh, you I, understand I, Absolutely. It would be, I mean, I saw, I got to see when I was 13 and 14, I don't know what part of the year I was that age, but I, I got to go to the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, which I ended up playing many, many years at once I became a, a professional. I saw Bob Dylan, I believe, in 64 I'd have to look at the history of that theater to see when he actually played or his history. But my mom took me when I was 14 to see Bob Dylan. And I also got to see John Baez somewhere in LA as well. And those were two galvanizing. They were my absolute heroes. I sang all their songs. I was inspired to pick up the guitar because of Joan. We were Quaker. She was Quaker. You know, all of her melding of music and activism and, and bringing Bob Dylan out on stage you know, I avidly read Sing Out magazine. I was too young to get to Greenwich Village and get to hear all those people play live, but I, I just followed it. And I, I remember those, the power of seeing Dylan. And, and um, it was probably, it might've been 63 or 64, but Joan Baez and Bob Dylan were the two concerts that changed, I would say just changed my life. I love that because I'm a huge fan of both, obviously. And it, it's interesting and, you know, tying this back in with the new music and, you know, one of the things, of course, that they were so good at, and especially at that point, was the vulnerability. And it's funny what you said about, you know, the performing and, and how these artists in the live performance and how they're, you know, the vulnerability of filming. I, I guess I keyed in on that because, look, you go back to a song like, you know, I Can't Make You Love Me. And then on the new record, just like that, it's interesting because, you know, think about performing that one. And it's like, there's such an intimacy to these songs. Is it something that I guess like it becomes comfortable for you or is it something that still 
is um, exhilarating in a way because there is such a vulnerability. There's such an openness. And as I say specifically on the new record, that's kind of the song. But also, by the way, you know, that song just really spoke to me. But Blame It On Me as well is another absolutely beautiful one. Thank you. I'm very proud of that one. You know, you know, ballads to me are the, they're always vulnerable. They're always where you rip your heart open. So it, it you know, Love Has No Pride was one early on and, and then Angel from Montgomery. I've been doing those since very beginning. And I wrote a song called Nothing Seems to Matter on my second album. But when you do the ballads, they just tear you open. And I think that the connection that I have with the artists that I love, whether growing up watching my dad perform and sing you know, beautiful songs from the Rodgers and Hammerstein, you know, shows he was in and getting a chance to hear Mahalia Jackson and Marian Anderson on TV and then listen to Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole and Tony Bennett. I mean, I was astonished at how the power of li a great lyric and song and the way that it was brought out in Ray Charles's voice and Aretha's voice. You know, I, I it's the ballads that are really the ones that stand out for me. And, and I try to couch them in my show and on the albums where there's a nice cushion of other feels around them. So you can't have too many heartbreak songs in a row or you just, people would slit their wrists out in the audience. So I, I appreciate that you like those two songs. I'm really proud of down the hall as well. And um, I can't wait to have that moment with the audience where it's like, you can't hear a pin. You can hear a pin drop, you know, it's, uh, those pinnacle songs, like I Can't Make You Love Me, it's just, I wait for them just like the audience is waiting for them. And, I, and uh, you know, there's a recovery period afterwards and there's a preparation before that song. But, after, you know, I've been doing that pacing since I, my first show when I was 20 years old. So I kind of know from having grown up in my dad's and mom's, you know, sh not their shadow, but with their inspiration and an example of how to put together a great concert where you you know there's pacing and and, and it's where and where and when and how you sing those beautiful ballads that make the show memorable for people yeah well as a fan by the way i don't know if you've thought about this but i'm just like again you know strictly as a fan and i understand the point about the not too many ballads in a row but man i'm just thinking just like that an angel from montgomery back to back would just kill the audience Oh, yeah. Well, I've got every, now it's just 21 albums worth of songs to fit in in, a, in an hour and 45 minutes. Because we're playing with, it's not really a co-bill, but it, to me, in my mind, it's a co-bill when I invited Lucinda Williams, who I've never toured with, to, to share the bill with me in the first part of the tour. And then we're reuniting um, with Mavis for the second two-thirds, uh, which we did 40 dates together for my Slipstream tour. And I, I'm just... Um, you know, I'm going to have to be doing a shorter set to give her longer, both of them longer time. And I, I might even have to do just like that backed up with Angel from Montgomery. See, for you, and okay, I've interviewed Lucinda not long ago. She's amazing. For you, talk about the fact how much fun it is to get to play with people who you just admire. And, you know, it's so funny because this goes back a billion years and, you know, people always want to create competition. But the reality is, is I've talked about this with, you know, going back to like the grunge era in Seattle and how musicians, you know, inspire each other. And it's like when you get to be around and Lucinda obviously has literally been named the greatest songwriter in the world by Time Magazine. You know, obviously Mavis Staples is a legend. For you, when you get to perform with people like that, talk about how it inspires you on a nightly basis. 
Well, I, I, we are mutual fans of each other as well as um, I've been friends with Mavis for many, many years. And <clears throat> it's funny when Jackson and I first met, one of our touchstones for what we had in common was we both, the Staple Singers were our favorite group, you know, so incredibly inspirational to this day. But, um, you know, to get to see, it's quite, it, it's it not even, it's not selfish, but I mean, it's a great joy to be able to have the, a, a, an extended period of time on tour together so you can actually hang out in the wings and watch each other from night to night and just see that magic in person and i've never toured with lucinda so that's going to be a thriller and we haven't we've met but we're not friends but i'm hoping that we will be able to have enough time um we're all in a little covid bubble on this next eight months so we can't really hang out with anybody on the days off but i imagine we'll have some time once we get our tests backstage we'll be able to you know she's when she's coming off there won't be meet and greets after the show. So we'll actually have some time to hang out, but we haven't sung together, but I'm hoping that we'll find something we can do. And Mavis and I usually do. Um, uh, can't can nobody turn me around. And um, will the circle be unbroken? We kind of toggle between those two and we'll, we'll just play it by ear. So we give the fans something new because her last three albums in particular, but maybe the last five have been some of the greatest records I have. So I, she's at the top of her game. And, you know, when people say, are you planning to retire? I look at Tony Bennett and Mick and Keith and, you know, Bob Dylan and, uh, and, and Mavis and think about what kind of singing and level that BB was putting out right until the very end. You know, why should I retire? I'd be bored to death. So it's really going to be fun to perform and listen to each other again and just hang out because there's so much love there between our two bands. Well, also from a retirement standpoint, that's fascinating that anybody would ask that. I don't really freaking get that at all. But it's interesting because, I mean, I've talked about this with Neil, with Carlos, you know. I mean, for so many people, I think as you get you get older, you get better because you have more experience to draw from and stuff. And I think, you know, again, do you feel like on this record, like these are some of sort of your finest vocal moments. And as an artist, are there moments that you look at now and look at like, okay, this isn't something that I could have done earlier because I didn't have the life experience. I didn't have the wisdom. Like a song again, like, you know, we'll go back to any of the ballads. And it's like, there's just an experience in them. Well, I, th I think in the, in the ears of the listener and the heart of the listener, you're going to notice the, the experience shows in people's voices and a burnishing that happens and, you know, as we get older, sometimes we gain more notes on the bottom of our range and lose some on the top. And the, your voice just changes with time. Um, but I really enjoy Ruth Brown's voice when she was at the end of her life and my dad's voice as much as I enjoyed the youthful versions. I can't listen to my own early records because I just hate how high my voice was. And I wanted to I used to drink and smoke and hang out with these blues guys trying to make my voice older so I could get maybe sing an Etta James song one day. But um, I, I don't really listen for, I mean, I don't compare how I sounded with, you know, singing one of the ballads that I love from my early thirties or something with now. I just know, you know, I've got my job in front of me, which is to find 10 more great songs and then have to take the heartbreak task of Solomon of which so which other song from the last record I have to cut out of the set to leave room for this new one, you know? So it, it's like, they're all my children and I love them a lot, but I, I have to say I would have cut any of those songs that I've done on my early records with, with a probably maybe five or six of the more up-tempo songs 
I wouldn't have cut again, but almost every song I've cut, I would do again if I hadn't already recorded it. I'm, I, that's how strongly I feel about those songs. When it's a match, um, you know, if you got to make a fool of somebody on Give It Up, if I hadn't done it on in 1972, I'd be doing it in 2022, you know? Yeah. All right. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but there's a million things I can ask you about. But I just have to ask now as a fan, now that, you know, your voice has changed and stuff, is there one Etta James song that you'd want to do, you know, or maybe you don't feel like you're still. At oh, you, you know, I, I, I wish she was here so we could sing together. I mean, we've, we've jammed together a little bit on festivals and stuff, but I, I probably, I have sung Aretha Franklin songs occasionally, but it was like 30 years later than when her hit was. So I gave it some time. Etta is the, one of the, along with Aretha, one of the greatest singers I will ever hear. And maybe somebody like Susan Tedeschi and I will get together and pay tribute to her and sing something that she's done. But to this day, Sunday Kind of Love is one of the greatest instructional vocals for me. To, I learned so much listening to the way she sang. But I don't think there's a song that she covered that I would want to do. But I know in the future, I'll, that's a good thing for you to suggest, Steve, because I'll, I'll wait until I'm on tour with somebody and then we'll cover it together. I mean, I did, I did wrap it up on an Americana festival show for PBS with Brittany Howard. That was really fun to do a Sam and Dave song. So I'm, I'm a big Brittany fan. I love her. I love, um, you know, Susan Tedeschi. I love Shamika Copeland. There'll be a, a woman's summit and we'll get to, we'll, we'll honor Etta together. All right, fair enough. By the way, I'm looking at the tour dates because selfishly, of course, I don't want to miss you and Lucinda together. Right now, there's only a few announced. Uh, and it's an interesting routing because it starts in California, Nevada, then two weeks off goes to the East Coast. Do you know when you come back to the West Coast? Oh, yeah. You know, if you look at on my website, it, it has all the cities. It just doesn't have that. We, we can't go on sale yet. The whole, t the whole tour is posted on my website until November. And then in the, it's color-coded, like there's green ones for Mavis's dates and peach-colored for Lucinda's. So, you know, you'll, you'll be able to plan which city to go to. We hit L.A., I think the West Coast we do in September. And, um, and then we're going to go back to Florida. So, you know, we're going to be doing a lot of TV between the first warm-up dates and um, the Rochester show. And I've got, you know, there's the Grammys and the Billboard event and, it's going to be busy. I don't think I have one day off between now and Rochester, except the day be the day I fly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm looking at this here. Okay, you come West Coast September, and you said the green dates are with Mavis, correct? Yeah. There, if, if you look at the top of the of that page, yeah, there's I, I color-coded around Mavis's picture. It's green and around Lucinda's, and that's how we could... I was hoping people would catch that. <laughs> but, Very quickly, and we'll wrap up on the album. You know... Two questions on this. The first one being, we talked about the live aspect. What songs from the record are you most excited to bring to the stage? I talked about the ballads, but for you, you talked about that sort of, you know, healing power of music. What are the couple that you're most excited to do? Oh, I love the new record so much. It's just, I, I wish I could play. It, it won't even be out when we play our first month. So, you know, it'll just be coming out. So I, I don't want to, I, I have to get around to... Uh, songs that people have actually heard but i'm going to be thrilled to play made up mind and i love living for the ones i'm really proud of that one because i want to sing about i wrote that song specifically about what we've been going through and how we get it how i got through it and um you know i probably will 
do just like that and blame it on me and that, you know, love so strong. I can't wait to play, but we just finished three weeks of rehearsal. So every song sounded great to me. I just can't wait to get out there. And when you go back and listen to this, cause you talked about the idea of having 10 great songs. When you listen to these 10 songs together, what do you take from this record as a complete work? Well, I mean, I, I don't have to judge. I mean, I just do the best I can and put together a great set that I, I the, you know, the best songs I can find, the best performances and put them in the right sequence. And then I don't spend a lot of time listening to it anymore because I've been living with it for a couple of months finishing it. So um, I just am very proud of it. I've been pr very proud of every record I come out with. So it's, it's always frustrating to not be able to play all the songs live. But um It'll be fun. That's why we'll, it'll be fun to go out the next year in 2023. We'll, we'll come around again and mix up and play some other songs from all the, all the records, mix and match. Awesome. Is there anything that you want to add I did not ask you about? No, that was a bunch of good questions. I, I kind of made up answers that w veered off where you had originally asked, but I hope you got what you needed. Oh, it's always such a great honor. It's so much fun and it's such a beautiful record. And, you know, it's, it's again, I've been a fan for so long. So it's a great honor to get to speak to you and congratulations on the record. And tell Dave hi and that I really look, I'm so glad his book is doing so well. I can't wait to see his movie if it's not too scary. And <laughs> I, I mean, just say that off the top of my head, I was laughing because I love that ACDC song. But I, you know, we'll figure something out that in the future, if we're ever on a benefit show together, we'll find that just the perfect cover song because I live for cover songs, you know, right down the line. And as you already, you know how much I love that. And the In Excess song, Need You Tonight. My favorite thing is to take great old hits and turn them into something new. I will wait. Now I have to ask just as a fan, what's your favorite song to cover? Song on what? Your favorite song to cover. That, that one? Oh, oh. Well, it's whatever. I mean, lately it's been Need You Tonight because that was off the last record and that was it's still fresh for us. But I mean, right down the line, you know, the ones of the ones I've already covered, Burning Down the House probably is my favorite. Nice. Yeah. Great songs. Is there one that you haven't done yet that's the dream to do? Um, not, well, not that I would reveal right now, no. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for the time. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot, right, Steve. Have fun. Bye. Hey, this is Steve Balton. Hope you enjoyed this interview with Bonnie Raid as much as we did. Thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.